Like many of you, I love the algorithms that suggest great new music based on my listening habits, and I rarely drive anywhere without using a satnav to find the fastest possible route. But in summer 2020, when British teenagers had their A-level grades decided by an algorithm, thousands took to the streets to protest, many calling for Education Secretary Gavin Williamson to be sacked. been marked down in a few subjects, the worst of which was philosophy. I got an A in my mock. The college had put me forward for an A and the exam board decided I should get a C. I was really disappointed with my grades and asked about like the appeal system and even our teachers have no idea um, how to appeal and there was just a lot of confusion. Three of my subjects were downgraded by the algorithm, the off-court algorithm. So they downgraded it to um, a, A, B, C, which meant that I missed out on both of my offers for medicine. Welcome to LSEIQ. I'm Joanna Bale, and this is the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. In this episode, I ask, do algorithms have too much power? Computer algorithms shape our lives and increasingly control our future. They have given us search engines, social media feeds and dating apps. They have crept into virtually every aspect of modern life, from health and policing to transport and politics. They are making life-changing choices on our behalf, often without us realising. But how much power should we give to them and have we let things go too far? We're going to explore what went on behind the scenes in the A-level fiasco, how the algorithms that control autocorrect on your phone could also be used to feed you fake news, how nations are using algorithms to create terrifying new weapons of war, and how algorithms make decisions about people based on their race and how poor they are. Should we trust big tech, or do we need others, social scientists for example, to help ensure algorithms are working in our best interests. Let's start by defining exactly what an algorithm is. Here's Bernard von Stengel, Professor of Mathematics at LSE. So let me give you an example. If you want for health purposes to find out whether somebody is possibly overweight, you can look at their weight, but that doesn't account on the size of the person. So a weight of 80 kilograms might be overweight for a small person, but completely normal for a taller person. So we have what is called the body mass index, which takes the weight in kilograms divided by the square of the height of the person in meters. But it's not an algorithm yet, it's just a formula. So if you would then make a decision that if you look at the patient's data and decide whether this body mass index exceeds a certain threshold and then invite them for a COVID jab, that would be an algorithm. An algorithm is a recipe that can be executed automatically in a prescribed manner. So it would be a decision procedure that says compute the body mass index. And if that is bigger than 30, say, this person is then classified as clinically overweight, send them an invitation so that they get their COVID jab. And that is, has in fact happened. Let's return to the story of the A-level algorithm. In March 2020, it was announced that summer exams were to be cancelled due to the pandemic. Cue many jubilant teenagers who thought they would be awarded predicted grades instead. 
Then Ofqual, the exams regulator, came up with an algorithm, which means they made up a recipe that automatically prescribed what grades students would get. It was designed to counteract the inevitable grade inflation from teacher-assessed grades. They asked teachers to rank each student in order from top to bottom of the class. The algorithm looked at the historical grade distribution of a school and then decided a student's grade on the basis of their class ranking. But if no one from your school had achieved an A star in the past three years, it was extremely unlikely for anyone to get one with the algorithm, however brilliant they might be. Also, the algorithm put more weight on teacher-assessed grades if there were fewer than 15 students in a particular subject at a particular school. That meant students at independent schools, where classes are smaller, were more likely to benefit from grade inflation than those at state schools. The end result, 39% of students received lower grades than expected, many of them from disadvantaged schools and backgrounds. After a huge public backlash, the exams regulator admitted fault and reverted to teacher-assessed grades. Boris Johnson even apologised to students. You couldn't sit your exams, which you yearned to do, and uh, I'm afraid that your your grades were uh, almost derailed by a mutant algorithm, and I I know how how stressful that must have been uh, for, uh, for pupils up and down the country. And I'm very, very glad that it has finally been, uh, been sorted out. I asked Bernard von Stengel to explain more about what went wrong. They thought it would be easier to say one student is better than another than saying what would be their predicted grade. I think they also asked for the grade. But then what they used, they used uh, these rankings in order to fit a curve to the previous distribution, which meant that two average students or a bunch of average students where the ranking was not very sharp, but somebody had to come last, all, all of a sudden put somebody, the one who came last in this in this uh, ranking, uh, all of a sudden to a C grade, because we needed a C grade in this distribution, rather than um, maybe a B plus or A minus or whatever they would have had if they had just been kept in the middle. So they underestimated the effect of this ranking and the more basic story is, in fact, they didn't test this algorithm enough. They didn't um, understand enough. It was a very complicated algorithm, of all things, compared to our body mass index algorithm, which is very simple. They had a very complicated one, which they did not properly understand. And they also did not um, ask uh, enough advice from the Royal Statistical Society who offered the advice and so on. So it was simply an algorithm that was poorly understood and that had much bigger effects than they thought. And also, they're not skeptical enough about the quality of the data that went in there, in this case, the rankings, because if you have a bunch of students, a lot of them will be in the middle, and the ranking is not that important. They're all roughly equally good. So this ranking was way overestimated. So essentially, what Bernard is saying is that they simply didn't understand the potential of the algorithm to produce some very unfair results. Like a recipe with the wrong ingredients, the data that was fed into it just didn't work and the end results were spat out in disgust. Andrew Murray is a professor of law at LSE and a specialist in new media and technology law. I asked him how this illustrates the challenges in allowing machines to make decisions for us. That's a really good question. Um, The A-level debacle in summer 2020 um, shows how 
algorithms are really misunderstood. Um, the government said um, the problem was that the algorithm was a, a mutant or somehow or other was, was not doing what was expected of it. But the truth is what was going on was that the algorithm was functioning based on the parameters that were programmed into it. It was working as one might expect it to. What this shows is it shows that the, it captured a bias. And this is a particular problem with all algorithms. The algorithm is designed by humans and we all are imperfect. And so therefore to expect an algorithm to somehow or other act perfectly based on our design is perhaps expecting too much. So into this algorithm went the biases of the historical data. And then when the algorithm carried out the processing of the current data, based on these biases, we got these what you might call unfair or unreasonable results. And I'm afraid biases occur everywhere in life. So algorithms may unconsciously bias against a, a gender or uh, a racial group or religious group um, or against a socioeconomic group. And the big problem with this is that whereas an individual decision maker, a human decision maker brings their biases, they're one person and they make a limited number of decisions and you would hope, trust, that perhaps on an appeal or review, this might be picked up upon. But when we encode these biases into algorithms, they then become what we call systemic and they then affect everyone. And the trouble is that we can correct it as happened in the summer 2020 A-level diet. It was fixed afterwards of a fashion. Um, but the problem is that by the time we get to that, the vast numbers of people affected are huge because it's systemically across the whole piece. Um, and correcting these systemic biases can be considerably more difficult and costly than correcting an individual bias. So algorithms capture existing human biases and embed them firmly into our automated decision-making. There are probably two people that I'm thinking about with respect to data-driven systems and cycles of disadvantage. So one comes from Charlotte, where we spoke to a young Black queer uh, individual named Quincy, who was really dismayed uh with the fact that they hadn't been able to get a job. And there were two things holding them back. One was a criminal record, and the other was uh, credit reports. And in the interview, Quincy uh, describes the fact that they had participated in these sets of protests and racial justice organizing Following the murder of Keith Lamont Scott in 2016 in Charlotte, there were lots of protests and lots of anger at the fact that the police had indiscriminately uh, killed this individual. So they were arrested and they had this record. Quincy describes going to a prospective employer and talking about their experience in these protests. And the employer, the interviewer, was actually accepting and, you know, sort of willing to look beyond this mark on their record. And yet, two weeks later, 
Quincy got the call back and the HR office said, I'm really sorry, you have a criminal record and we can't advance with uh, your employment here. And so in spite of that human relationship and that human understanding that happened at an interpersonal level, the larger system couldn't compute, right? They couldn't accept the fact that they had this mark and they didn't care about the context in which this arrest had been made. Sita Pena Gangaradan is an associate professor in LSE's Department of Media and Communications. She is one of the leaders of an award-winning research project called Our Data Bodies, which investigates how automated decisions affect low-income people in three US cities. She's talking here about some of the people whose lives she explored. Quincy also talked about credit reports and said something to the effect that I find it really incredible that and this is common in the United States, that credit reports are being used to determine employability, right? And they said something to the effect that, you know, what does my credit have to do with how I might perform on this job? Just because I fell on hard times doesn't mean I'm going to be more likely to steal or, uh, you know, do something wrong in the office. It just, just means that I fell on hard times. So I think that's a good example of how you know, credit report, uh, criminal record that exists within this larger context of disadvantage then gets magnified and then it's a sort of a feedback loop of injustice that happens. Sita's second case study comes from Los Angeles, a woman called Mallow who had been trying to get permanent housing. Mallow was living on Skid Row, which is uh, a, a part of Los Angeles that has a very large uh, unhoused population. And they had tried many times to appeal decisions by the housing office saying that, you know, you're not a high enough risk. You haven't scored high enough on the vulnerability index in order to be placed in permanent housing. So they, she was just sort of moving around from temporary housing to temporary. And it's very dangerous, right? Especially for women on Skid Row. There's a lot of violence that happens um, in the street against women. It's predominantly male in the unhoused population. And uh, at the same time that she was looking for permanent housing, she was also very active in protesting the conditions of the temporary housing and sort of the services that were being provided to unhoused people like herself. She was a noisy, noisy person in the mix. And she started to suspect, you know, is my outspokenness kind of interfering with this algorithmically determined placement, the uh, vulnerability index, and she couldn't figure it out. And, and it was impenetrable, right? The social workers, they don't actually know what goes into the formula. And it's otherwise impossible to really contest. And so she just kept trying and trying. Eventually, she did get placed, but it wasn't without really sort of crescendoing her dissatisfaction and her sense that she had been wronged by, uh, you know, not just an algorithmic system, but a system that is supposedly designed to help unhoused people, you know, settle themselves and, and get back on their feet. So I think that really illustrates this, you know, it's, it's a cycle of disadvantage. It's sort of a feedback loop of injustice. Nearly every U.S. state now uses some kind of predictive system in their criminal courts to handle bail and sentencing decisions. But a 2016 study found that one widely used software program 
labelled black defendants risky at nearly twice the rate as white defendants. The study also pointed to specific cases in which arrests for essentially the same petty crime resulted in drastically different risk scores based on the alleged perpetrator's skin colour. But if we could design better algorithms without these systemic biases, they could be of enormous help to our justice system, perhaps one day removing the need for courts and expensive lawyers altogether. Here's Andrew Murray. I do actually think that we will see um, algorithms used in legal disputes in short order. In fact, some companies are already working in this. There's, there's a company called Resilience um, that operates what's called a, a law tech platform, a law technology platform that uses algorithms to try and solve disputes between parties. Um, now, this is a private system at the moment. You can choose whether you want to use it or not. Um, but I, I think, you know, the arguments in favour of using algorithms in the sort of public justice system are very strong. Um, algorithms are quicker than the court system. One of the, one of the challenges of the court system is always that justice is said to be very slow. Uh, the gears of justice grind very slowly. Um, so algorithms offer a quicker system. They offer tantalizingly a cheaper system because it's, it doesn't involve the personnel that the court system does with barristers and judges and the gathering and presenting of evidence and all these kinds of things. There's a um, law professor called Richard Suskind um, who has written a, a very good book on this subject. And Richard Suskind's argument is that at the moment, not enough people have access to justice because it is too expensive but it brings with it a risk. It means that you're trusting a decision to be made by an algorithm rather than a human. So I don't know if everyone will be happy with that. So we've heard about the inherent biases in algorithms that created the A-level fiasco, that reinforced disadvantage in poor neighbourhoods by preventing people from getting jobs and housing, that deny black defendants parole and give them harsher sentences. Now let's look at how algorithms are the building blocks of something more complex – artificial intelligence. While many algorithms are simply a rigid set of instructions, artificial intelligence is powered by a group of algorithms that can modify themselves based on new data the machine encounters. So, the machine can learn and adapt to work out the best way of achieving an end, rather like a human. Removing humans from life-changing decisions is something that is being debated by governments in order to enhance national security. In the theatre of war, machines are rapidly taking over from humans. But how far should this go? I asked Andrew Murray if we will soon see killer robots being deployed. Governments are investing huge sums in AI to make decisions related to national security. Do you think wars will soon be fought by machines, which will be able to make their own decisions on killing people? The, the question of what are called lethal autonomous weapons systems or laws um, are one of the most challenging um, at the moment. Now, as far as we are aware, although obviously there's a degree of national security around these things, as far as we are aware, there is no battlefield ready, completely autonomous weapons system. At the moment, the weapon systems that we use 
um, involves something called human in the loop or human on the loop, which means that if we take an example of a Reaper or Predator drone, um, if a target is identified, the, the drone is not capable of releasing a weapon. It requires permission from a human operator who, who presses the release button. So at the moment, we keep humans controlling these weapons. But there is no doubt that um, there will come a time where governments see an advantage in the battlefield of removing the human from the loop because of the speed of response that you get from these completely autonomous weapons. Then we, I think, as a society, have to face up to the fact that we have created something and given it permission to take action to end a human life um, without a human decision maker authorizing it. That would be a big change, I think, for us um, psychologically and sociologically. I found Andrew's prophecy of killer robots let loose by warring nations quite terrifying. We were speaking over Zoom from our homes in the middle of yet another COVID lockdown, and the world already felt dystopian enough. It brought to mind futuristic movie classics, such as The Terminator and Blade Runner, in which robots and replicants bring death and destruction to humankind. Surely the theatre of war is one area where humans should never relinquish control. So autonomous weapons should be banned just like chemical and biological weapons. Thinking about it as a lawyer, it really changes the legal landscape quite um, deeply because um, we have very clear and very well-developed rules around the law of warfare and around international humanitarian law, um, around who is responsible um, and in terms of accountability for use and release of weapons. So, you know, the, the, the modern battlefield is actually quite well controlled in a strange way. It's, it's, it's lawyers set rules of engagement, uh, military lawyers set rules of engagement in conjunction, of course, with generals and military leaders. And all commanders in the battlefield follow these rules of engagement. And anyone who departs from them may end up being tried um, for a criminal offence, a, a war crime offence. Now, when we have artificial intelligence, if we have artificial intelligence, which can make kill decisions without a human intervention, we now have a machine that is essentially responsible. Now, you can see we can program in these rules of engagement into the programming system, and, and that's fine. Um, but what happens if at some point we get an AI that determines for whatever reason that the most effective and efficient thing to do to win the battle is to move just outside these rules of engagement. Now, you might say that'll never happen, but AI is designed to learn. It's designed to grow much like humans. And we already know that we can train AI to cheat. Um, AI has been shown to learn how to be duplicitous and how to cheat. So it's really about how we teach it, what it does. That would be quite um, an incredible step change at that point. At the moment where we are is that um, governments kind of are saying this isn't an issue yet because the technology is not there. So the major leading governments, the, the sort of permanent members of the Security Council, um, they're all indicating that there's no need for a specific international program of regulation for this because either they say we'll never deploy it 
um, or we're not developing it or, you know, or the technology is simply not ready. However, I think that's maybe a little naive and it would be helpful if governments and um, and politicians moved more quickly to regulate this area because there is no doubt that developmental work is undergoing in this area and it would be helpful to kind of set the parameters now rather than wait until the technology is more mature and then try and kind of retrofit the legal system to, to what's been developed. Are there any particular countries that are really looking into this more than others? Well, there are some countries that have very strongly developed technology. Israel has a very strongly developed uh, defensive system of technology, which they, they have one system called the Harup drone in particular, which is very close to being fully autonomous. It, it can patrol a large area. And then what happens is that if it picks up a signal, um, uh, a radar signal, it can lock on to where that radar signal is emanating from. And then basically it, it carries out kind of like a suicide dive um, onto that target, try, hopefully disabling it. So it can do that without a further human intervention once it's been deployed. I think at the moment, the kind of most developed understanding of AI technology is probably in China, but more in the civilian rather than in the, the military. Some of the leading Chinese AI companies um, are very well developed. And there's no doubt, I think, that you know, in the next five to 10 years, the countries that are going to be most likely to develop and deploy a fully autonomous weapon system are the United States military and the Chinese military, because they're the only two that really have the budgets as well as the technical know-how and the technical skills to develop it. So they're most likely to lead. So many nations are developing the technology for autonomous weapons, nations that are already benefiting from global asymmetries in power. Now, let's look more closely at this tricky balancing act between the inevitable desire for high-tech solutions to problems and how we make sure that their net overall effect is a positive force for all of us not just those in positions of power. Alison Powell is an Associate Professor in LSE's Department of Media and Communications, who worked with Google to explore transparency and accountability in automated decision systems. I interviewed designers who were working at Google uh, about how they developed algorithmic systems. And I interviewed people who were working on the systems that change the way that your mobile phone's keyboard system works, which is based on a specific type of machine learning called federated learning. It's a really, really difficult type of algorithm to make transparent. But there are all kinds of algorithmic systems from very straightforward input-output ones to much more complex machine learning systems. And federated learning is a more complex type of machine learning system because it divides the decision-making into two places and does two different kinds of things. Federated learning is a privacy-enhancing technique that allows Google to improve machine learning models without sending any raw data to Google servers. So, some information stays on your phone and other information is sent back to Google every time you use it. It works from the principle that there's a single central model which controls sort of how things work overall in a general sense. And that central model can automatically update 
millions of mobile phones, for example, to have their keyboards work in a different way from moment to moment and from day to day. When we type on our keyboards, the keyboard um, learns from what we're writing in to uh, perform different kinds of autocorrect. The keyboard might also have the keys arranged in a slightly different way. It might type faster or slower. There's a lot of different um, features and factors that could be controlled by a dynamic kind of keyboard algorithm, but it's mostly kind of autocorrect. And some of it is also to do with language settings. So if you move between languages frequently, you might observe that your keyboard starts to autocorrect into one of the languages and not into the other language because it's learning a little bit from how you're typing. When you type on your own keyboard, all of the information that you type on your own keyboard stays on your phone. What's sent back to Google to train the central model of this algorithm is a kind of statistical inference about generally how do people type without sending any detailed personal information. And that gets sent back to this central model, which again is then updated. And this is a fascinating technology because it is really dynamic. It's working all the time. It's working in the background. And we know that it's working um, to update our keyboards because the people that I interviewed had just at the time I interviewed them published some leading papers about this type of technology. But we also know that it's probably going to be the case that similar sorts of techniques are used in other areas. And this really poses a problem for overall governance. We all know that autocorrect can be useful and annoying in equal measure. But Alison is concerned that this sophisticated machine learning could be used for more sinister means. So we started asking about what would happen if a federated learning model like this one was controlling the delivery or prioritization of the news that you get on your individual device. Would it be really risky for there to be a kind of dynamically changing way that news was being uh, delivered to you? And would it be risky if that news was being constantly personalized by your own individual actions? That might mean that you and I would get completely different news and not know how to speak to each other about whether the news that you got was true or the news that I got was true. And of course, we now find ourselves in 2021 in a kind of situation where lots of algorithmic systems are working in the background. Many of our media technologies are delivered by large platform companies. And large platform companies do use these kinds of models to make the delivery of content seamless but make it very difficult for us to understand how much of that content is being changed based on, an, on a kind of prioritization algorithm. And can we actually change it to something else? Can we roll it back? Can we say, no, actually, everybody needs to get uh, a certain number of the same news headlines, and these need to be um, vetted by an editorial organization. So we can see these debates coming up all over media and communication studies and other parts of the social sciences where we start thinking actually these algorithms that are working in the background might be contributing to a bifurcation or a separation of different forms of information going to different people or perhaps even to the proliferation of disinformation and misinformation.
What did the Google engineers think of your research? Did they think it was valid or did they think it was kind of unnecessary? This was a collaborative project. So we spent time trying to work with the engineers to get to understand from them when and how they thought explanation of these complex models might be valuable. And we learned that they actually thought explanation was really valuable within their development process because the algorithms they were working on were so complex that different team members across the team that was developing this same system didn't actually know how all the parts worked. So in federated learning, for example, as I was saying, like how you type on your own keyboard, that sort of stays on your phone, but then some information about how you type goes back to train the central model. And the engineers who were working on keeping the central model secure from hacking didn't actually understand what kind of information was sent from individual devices back to the central model. Yes, that's right. The people in charge of the information didn't know what the information was. So they thought explanations as a kind of form of governance would be really valuable internally. They were a little less certain about whether it would be valuable to explain how these kinds of systems worked to an end user or to a person who was using the end product that they were designing. And I remember one of the interviewees said, well, I used to work on developing aircraft autopilot systems. And we don't ever explain how autopilot systems work. We just trust that people on airplanes trust that they work. There's really some interesting questions here about expertise, like who gets the explanation? Like, do you have to be an expert in algorithms to actually receive an explanation? What do you think? Do you think um, there should be more transparency? Well, I think we're really in trouble if there's no transparency, because there is a massive power imbalance between people who are using devices without really understanding how they work. So one of the things we came up with in the paper as a result of our conversations with the engineers was this concept that we might need an independent third party to assess these kinds of algorithms and that that third party might have to be where these explanations are directed. And that third party would then intervene in saying, actually, uh, the model that, you are, that you're using right now, this might have some risks for the public interest. Alison's research with Google is an interesting example of LSE's collaboration with a large tech company. Ken Benoit is the director of LSE's Data Science Institute and a professor of computational social science in the Department of Methodology. He's concerned that there is not enough collaboration like this to make sure that the wider implications of new tech are given more of a priority. We need to integrate what we're studying at the university with the sort of data science that's being done in the public and private sectors. And there's a very interesting shift in what's happened in data science, because like a lot of technology, private companies are so advanced and so wealthy that some of the cutting edge of science, including data science that's being done in private companies is far beyond some of the cutting edge in research universities. It used to be that we would develop things and then they would flow out into, into private practice. And very often it's the other way around. And we see private companies poaching teams, entire research teams from universities, because obviously they can offer much higher, uh, higher salaries 
sometimes more interesting conditions, and very often the sort of freedom that academics want um, to do their research. So we need to be working together with private companies, which is a real challenge because what private companies are paying to develop are secrets that are going to make them competitive against rivals. And they're not going to share that the way that we do in academia. So figuring out some way forward that's healthy for the world and not just for the bottom line of a few companies. And also you know, making sure that what we're doing at the university level is relevant and up to date. I think that's a challenge we haven't, we haven't quite figured out yet. If all of these private companies continue to develop their ideas and their technologies away from other people, you know, in secret, I mean, do you think that could lead to a sort of more dystopian world where there's a lot of power being wielded that, that might be being used in a, in a bad way? Some would say we're already there. And I'm not sure it's because of the secrecy of the research, but it's more about the, the power um, that private companies can exert. But we also see that, you know, regulation and governments can fight back. We do have better rules on data protection as a result of initiatives like the GDPR, but they're not universal and they're not always followed. And GDPR is also a complicated mess in some ways too. Ken is referring here to Europe's General Data Protection Regulation, which is widely regarded as the world's strongest set of data protection rules. Introduced in 2018, it places limits on what organisations can do with personal data and gives us greater rights to access the information that's held about us. I also think that powerful companies like social media companies are going to face increased regulation. And they already are. I mean, it's a dynamic that it's challenging and we're going to have to see how it resolves itself. There's no doubting the profoundly beneficial impact algorithms have had on our lives. They are the building blocks of technology that can help us diagnose cancer, track down criminals and avoid plane crashes. They connect us to the full wealth of human knowledge through a simple keypad. But as we've discovered through exploring the A-level fiasco, the negative effects on the lives of disadvantaged people, the development of autonomous lethal weapons, and the algorithms on your phone that are constantly changing the way it operates. There are problems with bias, error, accountability, and transparency. As with any source of great power, we shouldn't just bow to its authority and trust that it knows best. We need to question its decisions, scrutinize its motives, and hold it accountable to ensure that it is a positive force for us all and not just a privileged few. So, should social scientists and other experts be more involved in this process? Or should we leave it to the computer scientists and software developers? Here's Sita Penya Gangaradan. I think that social scientists really play an important and critical role and that in some ways we can sort of mediate between the tech elite and members of the public and translate between these because there are so many differences between the tech elite and, you know, the general user population. You know, they haven't fully gotten a handle on on everything. And so we have uh, an incredible responsibility to do the research and have that public dialogue in ways that I think many data scientists and many representatives from the tech industry haven't done.
CETA echoes what Alison said about the need for an independent third party to assess the potential risks of particular algorithms and what Ken said about the need for greater collaboration between academics and private companies. Here's the lawyer's view from Andrew Murray. Algorithms are, at the end of the day, a mathematical process. Uh, And as such, um, a lot of the development of algorithmic technologies are owned by people who understand the mathematical processes. So it's it's computer scientists, it's mathematicians, um, it's software developers. They tend to set the agenda and kind of start from the position of what can the algorithm do or not do. Now, I think what's perhaps missing from the debate, at least early on, is a kind of question around either the social moral or legal limits of what you should be doing. So oftentimes, I think people who are developing algorithms can see the the possibilities of what the algorithm offers, and they go ahead and work on it without necessarily having been fully informed or fully briefed of the potential risks and downsides. Alison Powell. Algorithms are a form of mediation. Social scientists know a lot about balancing different interests between different groups of people. Social scientists know a lot about power dynamics and how they play out through institutions. And increasingly, social scientists know enough about the kinds of design features of algorithmic systems to be able to ensure that these work for the benefit of all. And I guess the last thing to say is that social scientists have spent often our entire careers being very careful about how we define concepts like public interest. And finally, Ken Benoit. Well, hopefully we won't make mistakes like the fiasco with the exams in the future. We also see, for example, with the pandemic, data science is really important in tracking that and in coming up with solutions. We we have to come up with rules that are going to help us solve the problem, but also understanding how people react to the imposition of rules is a really important thing. And, you know, we, we've we seen countries around the world go through starts and stops with that as they learn. And very often learning in one context is different from learning in another. South Korea implemented controls quite early on and seemed to be pretty successful in getting their population to comply with those rules. That is something that the United States could only hope to achieve because of the federal system and because of cultural differences and and legal differences. It's much, much harder to impose a centralized set of rules that would affect everyone and even harder to get people to follow them. How do we understand those differences? Well, we understand that through places like the LSE, which can teach people about comparative context, about history, about politics, about law. Understanding that and putting that together with data science could could provide a much better way out of um, hopefully solution to some of the world's pressing problems. We are facing a sort of a pandemic of misinformation on social media. People are not trusting what they call mainstream media. We've got an environmental crisis that threatens our existence. We have related challenges of urbanization. We have issues of public health. We have the pandemic. We have probably future pandemics. How are we going to solve these problems? Well, we need to integrate data science into the sort of things that we're learning and studying and doing research on at the LSE. So, do algorithms have too much power? Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. 
This episode of LSEIQ was produced by Natalie Abbott, Ollie Johnson, Sophie Mallett and me, Joanna Bale. It was based in part on the following research. Hello World by Hannah Fry, Information Technology Law, The Law and Society by Andrew Murray, Explanations as Governance, Investigating Practices of Explanation in Algorithmic System Design by Alison Powell. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSEIQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover. Join us next time when we ask a right, a privilege, a question of identity or calculated transaction. What does it really mean to be a citizen? Thank you.